0: Well, we are in the midst of October, and we are back with episode two of our little mini-series on the history of the U.S. Supreme Court.
1: Welcome back. Thank you for joining us for episode two.
0: Uh, Yeah, and it's episode 56 of the show.
1: Episode 56 of the show? That's so exciting.
0: Episode 56, episode three or four of season Three.
1: Season. A season,
0: whatever. I think it's episode three. Episode
1: three. Okay.
0: Um, yeah, it's gonna be interesting. I mean, it's I just threw Hillary a curveball <laughs> about what we're gonna be talking about today, but it'll it'll work out fine. Um so uh but before we get started, it's chilly here. I'm doing that, I'm switching it up. The weather report it was chilly this morning. It was fifty five degrees in my house this morning that's nice that sounds which for but for san diego 55 degrees might as well be snow coming out of the sky it's chilly
1: yeah it's chilly i
0: put i put flannel sheets on the bed
1: you have a flannel shirt on
0: i do have a flannel shirt on yes i like i was like oh it's so chilly today i should get the parka out and like a balaclava and like you know, steel myself mm-hmm. against the frigid temperatures. I mean, it was here. that
1: way here too, though. I mean, I've been complaining about the just rancid heat and it's, it's back to being pretty hot today, but a few days ago it was in the forties. It was chilly and I loved it. I just was, Oh, it was fantastic. I, I really enjoyed the forties 40s.
0: 40s is forties 40s is even colder than cold.
1: Yeah. I think actually, even in the, the very, very early morning, cause I usually come into work around 6 a.m. I think it was like high 30s. I don't even Cause, have a jacket.
0: Because water freezes at 50 degrees,
1: right? No. I'm joking. I mean, we were just having a discussion about intelligence levels. So anyway.
0: Oh, man. In San
1: Diego terms, it does, I guess.
0: Oh, that idiot host of that podcast thinks water freezes at 50 degrees. What a
1: moron. Anyway, well, so that's the weather report.
0: That's the weather report. Well, let's go ahead and get started. Okay. Welcome to An Incomplete History. I'm Hillary. And I'm Jeff.
1: And we're your hosts for this weekly history podcast.
0: All right, so... The Taney Court, I think we ended up off with the Taney Court because I mentioned Taney gets appointed by Andrew Jackson. By Andrew Jackson, that's right. And Taney had like worked within the Jackson administration to challenge Mm -hmm. those bank laws. So I think Jackson saw a kindred spirit, right? He was like, oh, this guy is going to do what I want him to do. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he also kind of wades into that age-old battle that we've talked about many times, the Federalist versus Anti-Federalist battle. And he becomes the, I would say, um, kind of obvious choice for Andrew Jackson to, to wade into this new era because he succeeds uh, John Marshall, who we talked mm-hmm. about last week as being the longest serving Supreme Court justice in US history. Uh, and it's a very long, steady reign that you know Marshall kind of sets out the way that things function in the United States, and then Taney comes along and really kind of throws uh, a wrench in, in things. I would say, um, and it's He's at the, the behest. Second.
0: And he's the second longest.
1: The second longest. Yeah. So he was for about 28 years. So 1836 to 1864. uh, He serves a very long time and he really throws a wrench in a lot of the things that the Marshall Court had sort of set up. And then also, I think, lays the foundation for the continued fight between states' rights versus federal rights, It's like the age old thing here, right?
0: But he doesn't always exactly rule the way Jackson, I think, wants him to. I think that's another thing It's it's a little complicated at times, although the the most famous decision. I mean, let's let's talk about that at some point. But but first, I want to talk about this little lesser known decision, um, Luther versus Borden. Oh, OK, which which is a group in Rhode Island who are suing Rhode Island's government because they're saying it's not Republican. And I mean, Republican with little R, not a big R. Um, So there's, they're basically saying um, that this uh, guarantee clause um, from the constitution is supposed to make it uh, so every state has a Republican form of government. Um, So What it's, I think, designed to do is to prevent Rhode Island from becoming a monarchy, right, within the state. And this group kind of sues and says, look, this isn't Republican enough. Um, And the Supreme Court basically says, um, this isn't our job. It's actually Congress's he, job. He
1: kind of abstains from a couple of important decisions, doesn't he? The, he kind of just it's, steps off and is like, yes. oh, we're not going to do this. <laughs> I mean,
0: it certainly seems that they would want to get into this and say, look, like we can make a discussion. We can kind of weigh in on this this case. Um, but he doesn't. Um, and then there's kind of some Commerce Clause issues But let's get to the big one, which is Dred Scott versus Sanford.
1: Wait, wait, Um, wait, 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 wait. wait, wait, Oh, you want to
0: go back? Okay. I want to go back
1: because I I think that we should touch on the uh, Charles Bridge, Charles River Bridge case.
0: Oh, okay. I
1: I think that that was an important one. And that was decided, it was one of the early decisions and it was decided in 1837. And uh, this case was about the Massachusetts legislature of incorporating the Charles River Bridge Company to construct a bridge and to collect tolls. Um, In 1828, the legislature established the Warren Bridge Company to build a free bridge nearby. The new bridge deprived the old one of traffic and tolls. Okay, so there's like this dispute going on about like, well, which bridge should people have to take? And so the Charles River Bridge Company files suit. Claiming that the legislature had defaulted on the original contract, which was bringing in a lot of money for this other company. So the legal question comes into play. uh, Did the legislature enter into an economic contract with this company? And um, did the second charter violate the Constitution? Um, So the decision was that the state had not entered a contract And that the court held that the legislature neither neither gave exclusive control over the waters of the river, nor invaded corporate privilege by interfering with the company's profit-making ability. So this case really decides the rights of private property against the need for economic development. And the court found that the community interest in creating new channels of travel and trade had priority. So it's kind of like busting the ability to monopolize in certain ways, right? Um, and in this decision, again, it's kind of this earlier decision, and it's important because it weighed, you know, the importance of travel and trade against the importance of profit. And and I think that this kind of lays the groundwork for a lot of, you know, because we're expanding at this point, right? And there's like so much expansion going westward. And I think that this decision's kind of landmark in that way to, to, to lay out, you know, what is the right of property versus, you know.
0: Well, I mean, 1837, we're still in the early part of the Industrial Revolution, the first Industrial Revolution. And I think it is very much, it's trying to map out the relationships between state governments, the federal government, corporations, I I think it's kind of engaging in that whole thing. And um, I mean, Taney definitely seems to come down on the side of government in this. Um, even though you can argue Taney's all about the rights of states government, we're going to see that's not necessarily true. Um, it does kind of give a path for the federal government to kind of replicate this relationship, right? to um, go to Dred Scott or do you want to talk yeah, about? Yeah, I mean...
1: Okay, we can go to Tread Scott now.
0: Yeah, I'm just I'm just worried if we kind of examine, there are quite a few kind of prominent rulings during Taney's long. I, I thought ra- that that rule. one
1: was important, though. I think that because again of like the expansion question and about profits, et cetera. Like I thought that that was kind of a big one, but right. I think we're ready.
0: You um, to well, you, sure. I mean, this is the whole thing. We could go into kind of a deep dive into kind of the Taney court decisions that affect uh, various tribal organizations across the region. Um, But I I think I want to get us to Dred Scott. Okay. uh, Because this is... So the case comes... (laughs) Uh,
1: 1856.
0: Up, right. So this is about Dred Scott. And this is this decision is widely cited as a key moment in the outbreak of Civil War, right, secession yes. of the Civil War. Yes. So Dred Scott is an enslaved black man um and his owners took him from Missouri, which is a slaveholding state at this point, into Illinois which is not a slaveholding state. And then on to Wisconsin where slavery is actually illegal.
1: The, yeah. The Louisiana territory. Right.
0: Right. When they brought him back to Missouri, Scott sued for his freedom and claimed that because they had taken him into free territory, he had been automatically manumitted mm-hmm. and was no longer a slave. So he sues in Missouri court. Um, Obviously, Missouri court, since it's a slave-holding state, says, no, you're still a slave. Then he sues in federal court. Um, And the federal court ruled against him as well, so it eventually gets to the U.S. Supreme Court. So the U.S. Supreme Court issues a 7-2 decision, so a pretty strong decision Although remember, generally the court up till this point had really liked near unanimous decisions. They really didn't like split courts.
1: A dissent, right.
0: Um, They didn't like a large number of dissenting justices. So Taney writes the opinion, uh, the majority opinion, which is not generally common anymore, right? Chief justices don't always like to write majority opinions, right? They actually like to let other justices do this. Taney writes this. And the reason we talk about this court case today is Taney goes far beyond the bounds of this case. Taney ends up making some statements that are not about the individual Dred Scott, right? right? So people who talk about, well, we want to go back to an earlier form of the Supreme Court where it was less politicized and they didn't exercise judicial overreach, Dred Scott versus Sanford is like a the quintessential judicial overreach.
1: Textbook case. overreach, right? It causes so many problems in an already very tense moment politically.
0: So Taney phrases it this way: He says that people of African descent, quote, are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution, and can therefore claim none of the rights and privileges which which that instrument provides for and secures to citizens of the United States. Now, what does he do? He goes back and he says, you know, look, we can look at what the constitution, when it was first created in 1787, we can look at what state and local laws looked like at that period. Um, and he says, and so now we get to the kind of this originalist idea that Taney seems to be putting here, right? He says that if you look at those, there was a perpetual and impassable barrier that was intended to be erected between the white race and the one which they had reduced to slavery. So Taney says, not only is Dred Scott not a citizen at this point because of him being moved, he can never be a citizen.
1: And not just him, but anybody who's an ancestor of people who were imported into the United States under slate and sold as slaves. Like, yep. this is wild because he goes way beyond the individual and makes this blanket statement about mm-hmm. anybody who was descendants of people who were imported to the United States as slaves is a slave and can never be free and can never be citizens. Whoa, let's dial it back here a minute, right?
0: Yeah. Um, and opinion after this is pretty stark. Um, Taney also goes and says the Missouri Compromise is unconstitutional.
1: Right. And that's what, so the dissent. Uh, Benjamin Robbins Curtis criticized Taney and claimed, you know, he was upset that the court found that they lacked jurisdiction. And he pointed out that the invalidation of the Missouri Compromise was not necessary to resolve the case. And it was complete overreach. And even at that time was basically saying so. Um, and he also cast out on Taney's position that the founders had opposed anti-slavery laws. Um, and so he just basically in the dissent, and I, I like that you said that, you know, most of the time that the court's decisions, they wanted them to be unanimous. And in this dissent, though, I mean, at that moment, the dissent position states, Curtis states, like, you just went way out of control here. None well, of so, this needed to happen.
0: So Taney's our, Taney's logic was this. He said, you know, the Missouri Compromise was intended to free slaves um, in these northern regions, north of the 36th uh, um, latitude uh in Western territories. Taney says this is an attack on private property um without due process. So he cites the Fifth Amendment of the Constitution as well. And,
1: and private property meaning humans are property. That's yep. what he means by that. It's like the most regressive stance when so many states and in and um you know regions had like the louisiana territory had just like outlawed slavery outright in wisconsin right i mean there are so many places who are just trying to like overturn this and there's so much tension over whether or not you know states are going to be admitted or not as slave states and he just goes way way back and is like oh the whole thing is invalid and i mean that's those are fighting words, right? I mean, like, this is really one of the matches, I think, that that ignites civil war in, I mean, in he just says discussing humans as property still, right? I
0: mean, he says the right of property in a slave is distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. Wow. Wow. So... This is all do- to say
1: that the Supreme Court makes mistakes. Right. Um, Or, I mean, acts out of political, that they're not completely politically agnostic. They're not.
0: So what is a young candidate um, in Illinois? Oh, my gosh. Abraham Lincoln hates Taney. Well, what does he see it as doing? He sees it as... um, than an inexorable expansion of slavery across the entire United States. So it's a complete repudiation of local decisions by state governments in the North to do away with slavery. And it's the domination of slave, slave power, right? So slave power, when we talk, it's funny, students get confused when we talk about slave power. They think we're actually talking about the labor of enslaved individuals. What we're talking about is the political power slaveholding states in the united states hold for a long time
1: because Uh, of counting toward the
0: population right an outsized political power and they and they if you have an institution that half of the country has decided is no longer allowed but you have enough political power within your region to assure that institution can be continued why would you not do that
1: well what's interesting though is the taney court and then in reference to andrew jackson like so much of them were like anti-federalists, right? Like not having, um, you know, federal authority or power and like each state gets to make the decision. But this decision completely upended or violated the state's decisions to outlaw slavery, right? By basically overturning Mm -hmm. the Missouri Compromise. And he basically just set out a precedent that you can't, states can't make decisions about Um, ending slavery because they don't have that right and the constitution denies them rights to do so and so i always find the anti-federalist position interesting and its current situations you know hold this way as well of like states can decide things when we want them to decide things Mm
0: -hmm. but states
1: can't decide things when we don't want them to decide things and i'm thinking of like abortion versus gun laws i mean so I, i won't get into that right but this is an, another example of like, there's just such a lack of consistency in their approach to state versus federal rights.
0: Well, so Frederick Douglass responds almost immediately as well. And remember, Frederick Douglass had been an enslaved black man and, and he was now free and be, had become like this very vocal abolitionist. Um he actually, so what he says is the highest authority has spoken. The voice of the Supreme Court has gone out over the troubled waves of the national conscience. But my hopes were never brighter than now. I have no fear that the national con- conscience will be put to sleep by such an open, glaring, and scandalous tissue of lies. Douglas sees what's coming. He says, finally, we are at a moment of reckoning. And I think Lincoln is very much of this mind as well, Right. The nation's now arrived at a moment of reckoning. We can't have a country where half of it's slave and half of it's free. Um, So uh, is it fair to say the Dred Scott decision radicalizes both parties?
1: Absolutely. I think it's a landmark decision to say, we can no longer pretend that this isn't an issue. Yeah. You know, we we've been fighting about this. They fought about it since day one, mm-hmm. and and the slaveholding states had always had so much power because of the way that they counted their population and how much sway they had. Um, and this has been this has been a point of contention for decades. And I think this decision was that real watershed moment where both parties were radicalized to say, "Okay, something's got to give here." And I think it's very very much ignition for civil war.
0: So in 1850, the Fugitive Slave Act had been passed. Um, in 1859, a year before the Civil War, but, you know, people at that moment don't know the Civil War is going to happen, that it's imminently in- going to happen. Um, there is a case, uh, Abelman versus Booth. And in it, the Supreme Court, and this is where it gets really weird, because remember, there were two dissenters in Dred Scott, unanimously rule that this Fugitive Slave Act is constitutional. So now, no matter where a person who is black goes, they cannot escape slavery. And even if they kind of escape into an area where that law is not enforced... The residents of that area are legally compelled to return that person to their owner under penalty of law to them. Like, you can actually get in trouble if you don't actively go out and try to return this person. I mean, this is the worst nightmare of the slave power being completely out of control. Because now the slave power is reaching into the depths of Massachusetts. That's is, the
1: point, right? It's it is violating states' rights to choose to end slavery, right? Because that's always the narrative. It's like, well, it was states' rights. It was states' rights. They were was, the ones violating was, states' rights first.
0: But it was states' rights. It was states' rights that that I, I mean, I would argue. So I was um, initially taught about the Civil War back in elementary school in, in the, the south. south. And I was taught, actually, it was about states' rights. I do think it was about states' rights, but not in the way I was taught, in the way it's usually talked about. It was states' rights because this huge slave power in the South is is treading over the will of the majority in these northern states as to what they decide they should do.
1: But it, it's it's states rights over whether there should or shouldn't be slavery, right? right? And that's right. always the crux of it. It's like I have students so many times talk about that and I'm always just like states rights to do what, right? Um but you know, in, in current debate, that's that's what's happening right now with the the current Supreme Court is like the states' rights, it's states' rights. States should get to decide what happens and their constituents of that state should get to decide what happens with abortion with gun control with all these different things right um and we still have the states rights debate
0: well the and the interesting thing is the states rights debate it's so the slaveholding states were fine with states rights as long as the states weren't outlawing slavery
1: right it, and then it's the are, same thing it's the same thing right now with gun then,
0: control right then they are not okay if you know that state decides, "No, we're not going to have slavery." They're so, like, "Oh no, you don't have a right to do that."
1: So it's not about states' rights at all, but it's about upholding white supremacy and 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 in enforcing racialized slavery
0: in the guise of states' rights
1: in the guise of states' rights, absolutely.
0: Well, it's almost like it's states' rights as long as the way you enca- envision that is the same way I've envisioned it. And that's if you what differ I'm at saying. all, if you disagree with me at all, then that's not exactly mm-hmm. what it means. Then
1: that's not the states' rights we were talking about.
0: Exactly. I mean Dred Scott is as likely or or as as or as as good as any kind of Match that eventually lights this up, right? But I think Abelman versus Booth is this last moment for the Supreme Court to intervene and say, "You know what? The Fugitive Slave Act is just too much." This
1: it is. It's insane. So, can we talk a little bit about the Fugitive Slave Act?
0: So, yeah, I mean, it's because Ableman versus Booth, which is this last decision, uh, the last major decision the Taney Court oversees that kind of has far-reaching things. So, the Fugitive Slave Act. is part of a series of fugitive slave acts, right? There's not just one, there are multiple acts. There was one from 1792, 40, 1793. Then there's one other one. And then there's th- this one, the fugitive slave act of 1850. And the fugitive slave act of 1850, Um, I'm just pulling my notes upon that. I wasn't, Exactly prepared to talk about that, but you know, I'm I'm amenable. Um
1: I I can talk a little bit about I mean it was passed in 1850, um, it was part of the compromise of 1850, and it and it was the idea is that slaves it was required that they be returned to their owners, even if they were in a free state. So it no longer meant I mean, so the Underground Railroad would operate in the way that like okay, you just have to like make it through this series of states before you get to a free state. And the second that you step on free land, you are now free. And mm-hmm. it, it always just kind of, act, you know, operated in that way. And so there's this huge network of of people who are trying to like, you know, bring people into these free states. And as the, the Fugitive Slave Act um, is passed in 1850, um, it becomes not just law, but I mean, people do, they are actually hunting down people, um, who, who they think may, you know, have escaped slavery. And so this is like heavily targeting anybody who's black and who's free in these states. This is like the basis for 12 years a slave, right? It's based upon, um, you know, people hunting down, uh, Solomon Northrop, right? Um, and, and, and sending him back to the South to be re-enslaved. And so basically the messaging of that is, it's like anybody who's black in the United States is subject to being placed right back into slavery despite where they live. So It's a huge problem.
0: Law enforcement officials are required to arrest people suspected of escaping enslavement.
1: Suspected.
0: On as little as a claimant's sworn testimony of ownership.
1: Exactly. Yeah,
0: habeas, habeas corpus is declared irrelevant. Mm -hmm. No juries permitted.
1: So it's just based Uh, upon somebody's word. I own the they've escaped.
0: The alleged refugee from enslavement couldn't testify, but was given $10 if it was found that he was in fact, not a refugee, not a fugitive.
1: How, I mean, what are you up against in order to prove that?
0: Um, any person aiding a fugitive was subject to six months imprisonment and a $1,000 fine. And if you were a law enforcement official in a region and you didn't actively engage and participate, you were fined $1,000, which is the equivalent of about $30,000. John Brown. Yes. Says, quote, some of them are so alarmed that they tell me they cannot sleep on account of either them or their wives and children. I can only say I think I've been able to do something to revive their broken spirits. I want all my family to imagine themselves in the same dreadful situation. This is the situation of people who had escaped to Massachusetts to escape slavery. They live in constant fear that they're going to be found out and transported back into slavery. Um, Again, this this law elicits a very kind of strong reaction in people. Um, And then the Abelman Booth decision comes along because um, there was uh, a man who um, was accused of inciting a riot in Wisconsin, Um, and uh, he kind of is accused of inciting the riot to help a a slave, an escaped slave, and uh, U.S. Marshal Stephen Abelman kind of sues in court, right? Um, So Booth had brought a writ of habeas corpus, but remember, habeas corpus is suspended, according to the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, and, you know, the U.S. Marshall appealed to the state Supreme Court. The state Supreme Court said the federal law is unconstitutional and said Booth was right in what he did. Abelman then terms to the federal court. Um, the Wisconsin court refused to recognize the authority of the federal courts which is very weird. I mean, this is 1854. Things are spinning out of control, right? Um, Abelman turned to the federal courts. Federal courts refused to recognize the authority, or Supreme Court in Wisconsin refuses to recognize that, uh, that authority. Um, and they declare the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 unconstitutional. Um, there was an attempt at nullification here, right? So usually when we talk about nullification, We very much think like South Carolina, like Southern states nullifying federal laws they don't agree with. Well, the Wisconsin Supreme Court nullifies, tries to nullify this federal decision and this federal law, the Fugitive Slave Act. Um, Fortunately, uh, the man, the escaped person for whom this all kind of centers around, at least for this moment, um, he escapes to Canada. So he's like free, he can't be re-enslaved.
1: And that's what starts happening in quite a bit, right? Like the Underground Railroad ends up passing through even Northern states to just get people out of the country because there's no guarantee of freedom after the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act, right? And and I think a lot of times when we talk about the Civil War and the buildup to it, there's this idea that like, well, you know, there was a little bit of tension and then- you know the the shots go out over Fort Sumter, whatever, right? Like this is brewing for years, and a lot of it is predicated on court decisions. You know, just and then this overreach of the court, it, it just kind of lays the groundwork.
0: Well, here's the thing: the the irony in the the arguments that the slave powers, the Southern slave powers, are making in these court cases are going to be things they fundamentally disagree with in two years. So, part of this this decision, this Abelman versus Booth decision, is it's a unanimous decision. Taney actually says that the Wisconsin Supreme Court, by trying to nullify this law, is asserting dominance, supremacy over the federal system. And Taney says that's not true. And it actually references the Supremacy Clause. And he says that the Constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be passed in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made, of which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land, and the judges in every state shall be bound thereby. Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state, to the contrary, notwithstanding.
1: I mean, I, just a huge precursor for the conflict,
0: right? I mean, we get so, – so here's the thing. This, this decision is 1859. The following year, there is a presidential election and Southern states signal very early on that if Abraham Lincoln, who is now viewed as this kind of radical, who wants to end slavery completely, simply because he's opposed to the Dred Scott decision, the Fugitive Slave Act, Abelman versus Booth, they're painting him as this guy who wants to end slavery everywhere.
1: He's opposed as a lawyer. Yeah. Right. I mean, he's opposed from like really a uh, firm legal understanding and background and saying, like, this is just unconstitutional. Right. This right. isn't it just is- an opinion. This isn't just being me being political. Like this is total court overreach.
0: And I don't think this I mean, it's funny. This gets back to my statement a few episodes ago about how some people are like, well, Abraham Lincoln's racist here's the thing. It's, it's, he is opposed from a kind of trying to take on a kind of moral, what was morally correct at the time perspective. Look, he's opposing the things I think that were morally correct to oppose. The problem becomes Lincoln's not doing it for the reasons maybe contemporary people listening to this podcast might want him to be doing it. He's not doing it because he wants to uh, emancipate every single enslaved person in the United States. Um, His decision to kind of move towards that is still on the horizon. It's something he isn't to yet. Um,
1: But his decision initially is predicated on the fact that he thinks that the judicial overreach is happening and that the courts are kind of spiraling out of control and that we're kind of marching toward this inevitable very bloody conflict right which he i think he anticipates mm-hmm. i mean that's the thing about the war is i think that this drum this had been beating for for many many years in this lead up and i think that lincoln knew that this needed to happen right he knew that they just need to say it's over it's done because you're thinking about the united states it's one of the last governments on earth who still has i mean like Mexico had abolished abolished slavery well before Great Britain had abolished slavery. I mean, really, they're pretty far behind. I don't
0: know. I yeah, but I don't think that's a that's a claim we want to stick with too well because too much because there are actually quite a few countries that still allow slavery after the United States even ends it. Okay, um, but
1: I think that the United States is pretty behind, and I think Lincoln knows that.
0: I think. And I think behind. he knows that it's
1: an inevitable outcome that needs to just be decided.
0: I think, I think they seem behind kind of retrograde compared to the countries they usually are associated with and do business and things with, Um, you know, there are many countries, not many, but there are some countries where slavery is actually permitted to well in the 20th century. Um, But What I find really interesting is this, is that as a lawyer, kind of Lincoln, you know, I hate to say this, but making the right decision for the wrong reasons, it's a pretty quick turnaround, though, from 1859, this decision to uphold the Fugitive Slave Act, to Lincoln in 1863 issuing the Emancipation Proclamation.
1: I think he doubles down at that point.
0: Well, I think he doubles down, but I also, and I tell this to students, I think he actually finally views slavery as an evil and no, and no longer a necessary evil. It's something we have, don't have to live with. And I think this is Lincoln like saying, look, we can do better. We well, have I think to that do it's, better. It's
1: like the horrors of it really begin to be revealed, I think, too. Um as all of it's laid open and it just becomes to the forefront. I mean, and not to say that people didn't understand that it was horrific, but you know what I'm saying of like, it really, really comes out in the, in the midst of the civil war, just how depraved the system is. And everybody's attention is drawn to it. Mm. Um, That in ways where they cannot look away and they cannot ignore it. And they cannot pretend that it's not happening because it is right in front of them. And so there does have to be a moral, um, a denouncement of the practice right and so 1863 mm-hmm. it's finally just like okay that's the wrap on this situation
0: and i mean you know we could have a whole discussion about the Emancipation patient proclamation and, and the limits of it because it is kind of limited in its scope um any land that's under control uh, uh any land that did not secede uh so this was missouri kentucky maryland or Delaware. Is not included in the Emancipation Proclamation. Now, there are going to be a series of amendments, Reconstruction amendments, that are passed that kind of formally abolish slavery in the United States. Um, and, you know, we'll eventually, when we get back to our amendment series, we'll discuss kind of the legacies of those. But I want to kind of fast forward, even though I would love to spend time talking about well, what does the Supreme Court do about the Reconstruction amendments and stuff. I want to fast forward to the end of the 19th century, and I want to get to the Plessy versus Ferguson case. So we have this, you know, we we have the Emancipation Proclamation, and then we get the Reconstruction Amendments that abolish slavery, uh, guarantee the right to citizenship of formerly enslaved peoples, um, and then on the opposite, well, the opposite end of the century, the, the end of the century, we get this court ruling um, that upholds racial segregation and creates the doctrine of separate but equal. And the case kind of evolved in the early 1890s because um, this man, Homer Plessy, and Plessy is mixed race, um. And he gets on a train car in New Orleans. Um,
1: he he was like tapped to do this.
0: Okay, I so we, this we is- you should point that out. Like, yeah, so this this is, was
1: a test so, case. This was yeah. So was,
0: oftentimes, when the Supreme Court has kind of there's a law that that somebody wants to challenge, what they will do is they will create a set of of they will create a situation that can allow somebody to to launch a test case about this situation so the law was the separate car act of 1890 in Louisiana which required separate but equal railroad accommodations to white and non-white passengers
1: and this upset so, the
0: railroads so yes so because that's a, that's an expense right
1: That's exactly it. They had to have so many different cars and it was just kind of like not economically, you know, uh, helpful.
0: So Plessy boards this whites only train car and he's arrested. Um, and charged as violating the separate car act. Um, which is exactly what the people he was working with wanted. They wanted this challenge so they could challenge it in court. And I think they very much had their eyes on the Supreme court. They didn't, they knew they weren't going to get a ruling that was favorable in Louisiana court. So they wanted to get into the federal court system. And like we talked about last time, you can't, generally you cannot take a case straight to the Supreme court. Um, And You know, Plessy had kind of lived during this period where the possibilities for Black people in the United States seemed to be improving somewhat. He's born uh, just before, well, he's born in 1863. But as a child, he kind of sees emancipation and sees kind of this new potential for what's going to happen. Um, his actually, his family was uh, a free family of color. Right. Um, and, but he kind but he's of like saw part,
1: he's part white too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But he was legally black in Louisiana. But he's
0: legally in black because Louisiana has the one drop rule on these things. So, so, you know, he's arrested, he's charged with violating this law and it comes up, uh, and the surprise, the Louisiana court, you know, says no. There's no. There's nothing unconstitutional. Um, and, you know, um, and the Louisiana Supreme Court, headed by John Howard Ferguson, says, "Well, no, it's not unconstitutional." Um, so now it's kind of taken to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court, remember, loves to issue almost unanimous decisions, 7-1 decision. And they rule it doesn't violate the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. And the 14th Amendment is one of the um, Reconstruction Amendments to the Constitution. And uh, it says that that amendment requires elimination of all distinctions based upon color. And the Supreme Court rules, look. there's no implication of inferiority in the Louisiana law. Um, and we actually want to defer power to the state legislatures to regulate the health safety and morals. I love how they inject morals in here to under to kind of determine the reasonableness of laws that they pass. Um, and they established the, the idea of separate, but equal that, that look, if, if you could prove it was unequal, then sure, it's a violation, but as long as it's equal, there's no reason it can't be separate. And
1: they say that segregation itself is not unlawful discrimination.
0: They actually move to, do they actually say it's natural or they say, um, okay. I wanted I don't think to find they say my it's note
1: natural. Here. I don't think they say it's natural. Well, they say, they say that it's like, it's okay and that it's done in many places and that it's not actually mm-hmm. a problem.
0: Well, the idea, this is where we get the idea of you can't, you can legislate legal equality but there's no way you can legislate social equality. And one of the reasons the the majority opinion gives this this idea is that you can't force the co-mingling of races. Right, Um, that
1: each, that you have a right, each, like, this is not just states, but like companies, right?
0: Yeah. Have a right and
1: businesses have a right. To um segregate their customers or whatever in whatever manner they say see fit, and that they can't force, yeah, that they can't force mm-hmm. service to everybody equally,
0: so they have to do there, it
1: equally, but they can do it separately
0: that's that's the right, point. so there is one dissenter
1: one, um one dissenter in such an insane decision,
0: and this is right at the end of the nineteenth century, too. You can't argue this is something early in the 19th century right. prior to the civil war did we war. mention
1: 1896 yeah
0: yeah uh john har john marshall harlan um everyone knows that the statute in question had its origin and the purpose not so much to exclude white people from railroad cars occupied by blacks as to exclude colored people from coaches occupied by or assigned to white persons the thing to accomplish was under the guise of giving equal accommodation for whites and blacks to compel the latter to keep to themselves while traveling in railroad passenger coaches. No one would be so wanting in candor as to assert the contrary. Right? So Marshall, I mean, Harlan's basically calling out and saying, look, we all know why this law was created. It wasn't created to, to assure the safety of black people because you don't want them to be riding in a car with with people who maybe have violent reactions to them. It's to keep them separated, to keep them in an inferior position. And in fact, and we'll get to this case next week, when we finally get the overturning of this decision, um, half a century later, the court comes to the conclusion separate can never be equal.
1: when does the court come to that decision?
0: Uh, that's Brown v. Brown v. Board, of Education, is 1954. Mm-hmm. I think, off the top of my head, yeah. that's a
1: long time. It well, takes this is, it takes them like 60 years to be like, oh wait, that was a mistake.
0: So this is the, this is
1: what I talk about. It takes a long time. Sorry, go ahead.
0: So this is the the emergence of Jim Crow segregation, right? This is legally enshrined, the highest court in the land has determined segregation is fine. You cannot appeal higher than the Supreme Court in the United States. There is no appellate court above the Supreme Court. And it becomes the rule of the land, the segregation. Now, here's what's interesting. Many people assume segregation occurs only in southern states. Au contraire.
1: Right. Oh, yeah. No, that's a great point. This this happens in many places.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and it leads to kind of a toxic mix of legal principles that we still live with today. Um, do you know what the most... So there's a thing that happens in the 20th century called redlining, where banks and um, real estate development companies would conspire to have these maps about where they would provide mortgages for houses and where they wouldn't. And those red lines generally identified areas that were considered at risk. And these at risk areas, surprise, surprise, tended to be composed of non-white individuals. Um, Do you know what, and to kind of show you the widespread nature of how separate but equal kind of intrudes upon American society and is so pervasive across the country. Do you know what the most redlined city in the United States is by the 1950s?
1: I think it's San Diego, isn't it? Because I know that there's a major issue when UCSD was built that they could not, like there were so many Jewish professors that they couldn't even get housing in La Jolla. So right. it's, that's not the right answer, but it was bad in San Diego. I can tell you that San Diego
0: is really bad. Los Angeles becomes the most Los redlined Angeles city. Los Angeles is Los
1: Angeles. It's Angeles, Southern California, Southern, California, Southern California. California, right? Historically, so so conservative.
0: Well, but but here's the thing: is people think California? They assume that's not really the case out here. I mean, well, California
1: it, is and also this is, sterilizing everybody too. So, oh, well, that's let's true. Not, let's not um, forget.
0: Let's back to our. Eugenics discussion. Sorry, um, <laughs> can't help but. But that's. But I mean, it's Plessy versus Ferguson has long-lasting effects across the country,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and even once Brown v. Board of Education is enshrined into law, into kind of a, as a legal decision, and this separate but equal is viewed on, as unconstitutional, it doesn't correct the issues that already exist. Um, if you have neighborhoods that Black people weren't allowed to live in, because you had the creation of whites-only neighborhoods or blacks-only neighborhoods, um, you're not overnight going to suddenly desegregate that, right? And this brings us to the desegregation issue as well. In the wake of Brown v. Education, you get forced desegregation of schools. And
1: do you know what school was very resistant to this?
0: Oh, is it a university? It is. Is it a university that has a reptile as a mascot?
1: It most certainly is.
0: Um, we'll Thought let you do it your own hard. We'll let you do your own investigation as to what university that may yeah. be. Um, and again, and this is another thing we live with even today is is the long legacy of this, um, of you know, institutions, including universities. Segregating students um, and mm-hmm. saying, "Well, look, no, this university isn't for you." Um, so, kind of a couple of really bad court decisions from a modern perspective, oh and, and but the, they were viewed. But they were viewed to go back to our presentism thing. They were viewed as a problem even when they were decided. There was a strong outcry.
1: Yes, that's the whole thing here, right? It's like you cannot eliminate the political leanings of these members of the court. And you cannot eliminate their um, intrusion into culture wars then or now. And so, you know, I don't think that this is a presentism debate, right? Like you said, because even at the time there was outcry that this is ridiculous. I mean, Dred Scott leads to to a full-blown civil war, hmm. Right. I so mean, I'm you, looking at people were upset.
0: Well, I'm looking at political cartoons from the period where they're showing like, this is what a white rail car looks like. This is what a, a rail car that's designated for black people looks like. They all knew everybody knew what this meant. They knew exactly what this was designed to do. It was designed to keep black people in an inferior position. And to keep them away from white people. Um People knew this. And mm-hmm. what's interesting is even at the height of kind of the antebellum slave South, New Orleans had always kind of been this place where there was a little more mingling across racial lines than there were in some other places just because of New Orleans kind of history. Um, They're so real. I mean, is it—is it an overreach to say, not necessarily just as a result of this court case, but largely influenced by it, there is a foreclosing on the opportunity of people of different races to intermingle across the United States, or at least an attempt for over 50 years to make it very difficult to occur.
1: Not just difficult to occur, but I mean, yeah, very intentional, difficult to occur, but all, just by design, right? Like, I mean, that's the complete purpose of it is to codify, um, you know, racial discord, you know, to, yep. to ensure that there is no overlap. And I mean, that's the whole discussion about Brown v. Board is like, when you start to forcefully integrate the schools, it's actually the Northern states who are more impacted or like the non, the non-confederate states, because actually like the highest concentration of Black Americans are still in the South. And there's, there's segregation, yes, but there's far more overlap between Black and white Americans that's happening in a lot of spaces. And you'd be surprised, I think, to know that like places like California, places like New York are heavily segregated by this redlining, and it's all intentional. And we still to this day see extreme segregation and, and also the, you know, the gerrymandering of the districts and all this kind of stuff based upon race. And it's like, these court decisions like plessy like it kind of codifies that it's not just like we want this to happen it's like this is codified into law this is how it has to happen within the united states so it it like paves the way for it
0: well it does encourages it it encourages it doesn't mandate it you don't have to do this no but it
1: encourages
0: but it allows states to create laws that require it yeah yeah right louisiana says you have to do this and the supreme and the decision basically says that Um, Did you know that Louisiana actually does posthumously pardon Plessy of his charges?
1: Thanks so much.
0: Guess when that happens? Kind of like
1: Galileo, you know? Yeah, guess
0: when when that pardon happens? I mean, probably like in the 2000s. Uh, 2021.
1: No, last year. Oh my God. It it actually wasn't.
0: Right. It actually was not signed into, uh, it was not approved by the governor until January 5th, 2022. Jesus
1: Lord Almighty. (laughs) <laughs> it's like I was reading today about how, um, you know, like the Loving versus Virginia decision that made it illegal to, you know, stop interracial marriage from happening. That, that was yes. not removed from Alabama state law. Miscegenation was not removed from Alabama state law until 2000.
0: I mean, to be <sighs> fair, California doesn't. Holy
1: moly! Ratif-
0: California doesn't formally ratify the Reconstruction amendments until the relatively recent past. I mean...
1: Well, and like how Mississippi didn't ratify ratify women's right to vote, the 19th Amendment until the 1980s. What on earth? My goodness.
0: (laughs) Clutching my pearls. I mean, I would love to say things are going to get better on our final episode about the history of the Supreme Court, but they're not. It's
1: a downhill. It's downhill. (laughs)
0: What I, but what I, I think, I, a takeaway I want people to understand is this. Recently, the Supreme Court, people argue it's become highly politicized. I would argue the Supreme Court has always been highly politicized.
1: That's a great point. Yes.
0: It's like I challenge you to point to a period in the Supreme Court when it wasn't politicized.
1: Right. Yeah, it is it is a political entity. And that's, I love the description that you wrote. It's like, these are some of the nine most powerful people in the world, and they are not elected. And they are highly political, and, and make really, really huge decisions about the ways in which we can live our lives day to day. And it's based on very, very politically charged moments in history of just nine unelected officials. It's nuts.
0: I mean, at one point, they have the ability to say, oh, Hillary, we know you're an abolitionist and you poor slavery. We're not going to legally mandate that you have to help us recover enslaved people.
1: Right. Well, I mean, think about what's going on right now where there are states saying, like, you have to report people who are getting abortions. What? And that you can well, be you're... financially rewarded for doing it. It's very you're, Fugitive you're... Slave Act.
0: You're connecting the dots a little more explicitly than I thought we'd agreed to do, but that's fine. I agree with I'm you completely. I'm sorry.
1: I'm sorry.
0: No, I... I, I can't well, myself. But here's the thing. It's if really cannot, important.
1: S- it affects my life. If
0: if you cannot see the connections between those two things... That's I don't, my bad. You can edit that can out. Do. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I know. I think it's a valid point, I'm right? I'm violating like
1: HB7 by telling you what to think.
0: Supreme yeah. Court can dictate the way you can exercise your closely held beliefs. And it's always been able, not always been able, but it is for most of its existence, sought to do this in some way. Um, And and it operates under this, there's this kind of mythology about it. Um, We operate now that the appointment's for life. I mean, it doesn't have to be. Um, you can it impeach have Supreme. These aren't popes. Can, you can impeach justices. You can impeach judges. Mm-hmm. Um, lying under oath is an impeachable, easily an impeachable offense.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and you know, people just need to be more aware of <laughs> the incredible power this court has. I think people are
1: well aware of it right at this moment.
0: Well, maybe, maybe, but.
1: They may not know the history that this is not something new. I think that's the point. I don't, I think people don't realize like, okay, this has been something that's been going on for a really long time. And now there's been a decision that's come down that has made you upset, but that actually for centuries now, there have been lots of decisions that have made lots of people upset.
0: You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely. Yeah. I see what you're saying now, but. I mean, they also need to you need to educate yourself as a citizen if you live in the United States um and can vote. educate yourself on on there are kind of things that can be done right? There are um, things and you know one of those things is the president is the one who gets to nominate Supreme Court justices.
1: That's, I mean, honestly, that was the big rallying cry and it didn't really seem to do much. And now the reap, the sowing, all of these things coming to pass as we speak.
0: All so, right. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll leave it on this highly charged political town.
1: Cause I can't, because much like a Supreme court justice, I cannot hide, right? I'm not politically agnostic. Right. I'm just a human. What can I say? Right. Anyway.
0: Right. Well, I mean, that's the thing is like, it's, yes, we are not politically agnostic people. Um, And it's, you know, it's funny. It's, we can, we should maybe have an expert in higher education on to discuss with us.
1: I think we should.
0: This HB7 thing and like the history of. We'll do that in the new year. I think we're going to try to arrange that. A discussion of academic freedom at universities in the history <laughs> of it. Okay. In HP7, right? So cal cuz it's interesting California has a role in academic freedom. Yes. And initially it's not a good role. <laughs> no.
1: <right>. Again, <laughs> at least, California out here wild and
0: at least know. for those of us who teach at higher at institutes of higher right. learning. Right. All right. Well, it was a good discussion today. I hope you learned something, people who are listening.
1: (laughs) Thanks for listening. I'm Hillary.
0: And I'm Jeff. Until next time.